When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by FanDuel.com, the leader in one-week fantasy football leagues. And right now, FanDuel will match the first deposit dollar up to $200 for the first 50 people who use the promo code HANG at FanDuel.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 27th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Giants pitcher Madison Bumgarner's playoff dominance, San Francisco's tenuous 3-2 lead over the Kansas City Royals in the World Series, and attempts to assess baseball's health by looking at playoff TV ratings. We'll also be joined by Mary Willingham, the whistleblower in the North Carolina academic scandal, to talk about how student-athletes at UNC benefited from a shadow curriculum of phony courses. Slade Long of ProBullStats.com will be here to discuss the life, the legacy, and the highly valuable semen of Bushwhacker, the most decorated animal in the history of professional bull riding. And in our bonus segment for Slade Plus members, we'll talk about Japanese baseball's bizarre playoff system and whether the major leagues can learn anything from it. 
Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, and a man who looked a little concerned when I said the phrase highly valuable semen without knowing what the noun referent of that phrase was. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. I just want to know the value of this. I hope we get into that. I hope we do, too. It remains to be seen. Uh, Mike Pesca. Yes. What are your thoughts on highly valuable semen? For it? Um, I would like to read on this the birthday, the hundred, the centenary of uh, Dylan Thomas, 100th anniversary of his birth. These lines from his most famous poem. Well, maybe Child's Christmas in Wales. But good men, the last wave by, crying how bright. Their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I dedicate that to you, Josh, and your New Orleans Saints, whose frail deeds danced all over Green Bay. But, of course, it was a home game, and the Saints are usually good at home. So that brings us to this week's Whimsy Watch. <laughs> you didn't think there was going to be a week, too. No, no, no. Let's I thought go. you'd forgotten about All right. Whimsy Watch. I, have... I was worried. So Whim- Whimsy Watch is still in its early stages. Last week, I just threw out one thing, which was the orchestrated Peyton Manning keep away. We need a little, we need a little clown music for Whimsy Watch, got a little baby elephant So this week, I've got five things. So maybe we can just be a rapid fire, and you can say Whimsy or not Whimsy, Mike. Or should we go like WhimsyCon 1, WhimsyCon 2? Fine. You got it. I'll do WhimsyCon, not WhimsyCon. All right. Jeremy Macklin flying out of bounds and knocking over all the Gatorade? Not whimsical. All right. I'm learning. We're all learning. The Steelers bumblebee uniforms? (laughs) Whimsical, especially because all the guys with double-digit numbers look like they had triple-digit numbers because they had that thin line in between. I only think the numbers look like they had three digits if the jersey number started with a one, so like 110 or 112. No, I thought Le'Veon Bell was number 216 all game. Confuse me. (laughs) All right, um, Whimsy Watch, number three. J.J. Watt taking a selfie mm. with uh, rookie quarterback Zach Medenberger after sacking him. Mm-hmm. No, All right, no, not whimsical, no, not whimsical. No. Mean-spirited. All right, yeah. Here, yeah. here we get to the Packers. Um, for whatever reason, throwing a slant to defensive lineman uh, Julius Peppers. <laughs> <laughs> whimsical. That's tough. I guess. Except that they wouldn't say, except the coaches would say that it was a deeply evolved and considered strategy to take advantage and exploit. The coaches might not know best. Saints defense. Final whimsy watch also doubles as the Jets kvetch. The Jets hiding the guy in the end zone on the return by having him lie flat on the ground and having it fail massively. That is the most whimsical thing all game. <laughs> I thought Sammy Watkins pre-celebration. Oh, uh, yeah. That was possible whimsy watch, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, this that was whimsical. <laughs> the hiding the guy on the ground. It's awesome. All right. On to baseball. On Sunday night in San Francisco, the Giants shut out the Kansas City Royals 5-0 to take the lead in the World Series, three games to two. The man who pitched that shutout, 25-year-old Madison Bumgarner, also won game one with seven innings of one-run ball. Now has given up one earned run and four career World Series starts. That's a 0.29 ERA. Makes Mariano Rivera look like Melito Perez. Who is, he, who is your guy, Mike? Melito Perez? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pasquale Perez. He looks like one of the lesser-known Perez Perez's. brothers compared to Madison Bum- Bumgarner. It's the best-ever ERA for anyone with at least 25 innings pitched in the World Series. My favorite part of the game, though, was interview afterwards with uh, Ken Rosenthal on Fox. He asked Bumgarner for the secret to his success, and here is that Q&A in its entirety. How are you able to be so successful when the games matter most? You know what? For some reason, I keep getting real lucky in, in this, this time of year, so I'll take it. 
That is a very folksy individual. I would also note that he once got his girlfriend, maybe his wife. I don't know if he was a girlfriend or his wife, but he once bought her a cow uh, for a birthday present. This is a man that we need should have right brought now. A bushwhacker. He should have brought. We'll get to that later. Should have maybe now that he's going to be a rich. Uh, World Series hero, potentially. He could buy her Bushwhacker, maybe some of Bushwhacker semen. We'll see. We'll see in a few weeks. This is the folksy kind of hero that America and baseball needs right now, Mike Pesca. Mm. He's a great man. I, I just think he's hard to hit. That's it. <laughs> Let's not overanalyze this. He uh, Does he have a personality? He has hair that really needs <laughs> a little tending to. That was enough for Tim Lincecum for That's many years. It. That's pretty much it. I mean, even the extremely colorful Pablo Sandoval, when you really think about it, not that colorful, just really does look like a particular cartoon character. (laughs) I think that it needs updating. He's a little more like a minion now that you think about it. But yeah, and so you talk about the the Giants' razor-thin 3-2 lead. I don't know if I believe that. But because Bumgarner, he might pitch, you know, two innings in Game 7. It's all about Bumgarner. Well, the Royals' advantage is with the bullpen and when they get a lead. And Bumgarner is not going to start Game 6 and Game 7 for the Giants. So there's going to be, I think, parity between the starting pitchers. And the Royals have shown, you know, if they don't have a particular skill for winning uh, one-run games. You could have fooled me in the last, you know, couple series. So they're going home. Um, I think it's eight of the last ten times it's been three to two down with the trailing team going back home. They've come back to win the World Series. I don't think anyone's won Game 7 on the road in the World Series since 1979. Um, so if you're a Royals they, fan... It doesn't get to Game 7. How many Game 7s have there been? Mike, why, why, are you trying, what, why are you trying to bring logic to this? We're, we're trying Sorry. to speak to the... Total downer. We're trying to speak I'm to the concerned... i that one. <laughs> we're trying to con- speak to the concerned Kansas City fan out there. Okay. okay. There's still a lot of reason for hope and perhaps even rational reason to hope. That poor guy from South Korea. I want him to have hope. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The Kansas City Royals fan. There is reason. It's baseball. It's one game. Kansas City has to win one game on Tuesday. There's no momentum. It's a baseball game. They've proven that they can win lots of baseball games in this postseason. It's a baseball game? It's a baseball game. Yes. Yeah. Well, I did... Okay, even though it's a baseball game, I do think... Wait, does this commit the sin that we hated? I do think Ned Yost made a couple bad mistakes. I don't know why. Uh, it wasn't just that James Shields couldn't get out of the sixth and they had him pinch. Uh, they didn't pinch hit for him in the fifth. You got a guy on second. You put Shields up. You're just basically this is when they're down two nothing. You're basically saying we're going to waste the very few opportunities we have of getting a guy in scoring position. I think that was a bit of a blunder. But of course, the biggest blunder was, you know just etched on the face of Billy Butler as he stood there. Now, Billy Butler's a right-handed hitter, and Bumgartner's, you know, uh, pumping curveballs. They're supposed to be easier to hit for a guy like Butler. No, no, no. He just stood there as frozen on a big looping curveball as I have ever seen a guy. And, you know, Billy Butler... More frozen than Carlos Beltran. That's right. Billy Butler, a professional hitter, is also known as country breakfast. So keep all those things in mind when you look at that frozen look on his face. That's some amazing... The way Bumgarner did it, those, he was getting all these strikeouts on curveballs. It was pretty unusual. I actually, more than just saying... I, I'll amend my comments before. Not only was he pitching well, he was pitching interestingly, and I give him credit for that. So Bumgarner apparently does not watch any video 
of the opposition. So when he was kind of playing dumb <laughs> before, I think that wasn't playing dumb. I think he's just like, um, you know, he talks to pitching coach Dave Rigetti, he talks to Buster Posey about how to pitch guys before the game. But he is not somebody who's like incredibly studious. And Jake Peavy, the Giants pitcher, was like, we got to get Bumgarner to start like learning who these hitters are. But there's a certain kind of like pre-modern simplicity to this dude that I think has a lot of appeal. I don't know. He's like, he just out. He's is he just like a kid out there? Is he just I where? Think, is he just like selling Wrangler jeans? Is he pitching Wrangler before, jeans? I think is he from pit- Kiln, Mississippi? <laughs> is is he? Uh, Stop me! Stop me if you've heard this before. Please no, I continue. think what it is is before a pitcher has his first injury and has to learn how to pitch intelligently, he can just go out there and pitch on skill. And actually, I wouldn't want to mess up a pitcher who is either throwing ninety-eight. You think you think a Roldis Chapman studies the opposition <laughs> insofar as they're human and can't catch up with a hundred one mile hour fastball? And given Bumgartner's compliment to stuff, yeah, no one's going to be able to hit it, so just pitch it. He's 25 years old, and I think that's part of your point, is that he has not gotten to the point where he has to be more studious. And the Giants have been very smart with this guy. They signed him in 2012 to a five-year contract extension that takes him through his arbitration year and takes him through the first year of free agency at a relative bargain of $35 million in new money over five years. They've got options for 2018 and 2019. It's a pretty smart front office strategy. And for all of the demonification or at least the criticism of Brian Sabian, the Giants GM, for not being modern enough, which is, you know, baloney. I mean, the the Giants employ as much sabermetric analysis as other teams do. Um, Seems like their strategy has been incredibly smart for building not only the rotation, but the entire team. It is just so odd, and you wouldn't see this in other sports, that Lincecum is still on the team, was so amazing and such a phenom and so good. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like anything like demonstrable happened to the guy. It's I don't think like his arm flew off or anything like that, but he's just not really that good anymore. And he is a mop-up guy in the playoffs. He's kind of been shoved aside by Bumgarner. He did pitch a no-hitter this year, but that mm-hmm. was kind of anomalous but it just goes to show that even if you lock up a talent like this guy could just be terrible in two years so who knows if it's a smart move it seems like a smart move now but with Lincecum who would have ever imagined that their best player would be basically a zero now they would still be this close to winning the world series and you would still talk about how smart they were with their pitching yeah and Beyond even what you said, let's say you sign Kershaw to the biggest contract ever, and it looks like a great contract, mm-hmm. and he goes out in the playoffs and blows it, which is small sample size. Yeah, it's the sample size we're all going crazy about with Bumgarner. So maybe Bruce Bochy's a good manager. Maybe they know. You know, they. I don't. I don't know if they ever thought that Bumgarner was destined to be the staff ace. I might be wrong about that. I just didn't get the sense. Like if you put all those guys into the mix, Kane. Vogel song, Bumgarner. Was anyone saying, yeah, of those guys, Bumgarner's the guy who's going to emerge. So maybe what you do is get a lot of good pitchers and hope, uh, you know, one or two pay off. I think that's what you have to do. And if you can get them at what are relatively reasonable prices, and Lincecum certainly wasn't because he had already been through the most successful years of his career. But if you get the other guys at reasonable prices, and Matt Cain also injured this year with elbow surgery in August, he was not signed, certainly, to a reasonable contract extension. It was like $127 million for 
six years. But at the other end, yeah, I mean, look, the strategy is what the Tampa Bay has employed. It's what Kansas City has employed. It's what other smaller market teams have employed and what big market teams have tried to do with players that are good at a young age. Lock them up at least through free agency, hope that they don't get hurt until then, and then maybe not overpay when they hit the market when they're 30 years old. All right, let's quickly have the perennial conversation about the health of baseball as viewed through the lens of TV ratings. There's a front page (laughs) story in the Times last week, New York Times, by Jonathan Mahler. Times is like industry shorthand. Uh, By Jonathan Mahler and Bill Carter with the headline, Series is on and everybody's watching. Football. Football. World Mm -hmm. Series 2014. Baseball is no longer the center of attention in a new landscape. They note that Game 1 got 12.2 million viewers, lowest rated Game 1 ever. Game 2, 12.9 million Uh, They compare it to 1985 when the Royals won the World Series. Last time they were there, games averaged 34.5 million viewers. Um, Last week, more people watched NCIS New Orleans. Eh, New Orleans, huh? Good show. Why wouldn't you tune in? New Orleans. Uh, The Big Bang Theory also and Walking Dead, which is on cable. More people watch those. It's on cable. It's on cable. Outrage. Who has cable? More people watch those in the World Series opener. The Sunday Night Football win by the Broncos had double the audience. Here's my complaint about this. Two... Big complaints. First, first, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can have your complaints a second. Two, two big complaints about this. First, all these stories neglect to mention the context of baseball never having more revenue than it does now. Um, record revenue last year, which was um, over eight billion dollars for the first time, and it's going to go up this year um, due to new TV contracts. And so, when you're talking about the health of the game, that would seem to be a pretty important data point. Also. Attendance, you know, the attendance in Major League Stadiums is more than it was back when more people were watching it on TV. There are more than 70 million people at games this year. It wasn't the highest total ever, seventh highest total ever, but still like it's not like the lowest attendance in the history of baseball, which is kind of the implication in these stories is that nobody cares about baseball or watches baseball anymore. And then second, just nobody watches TV with the same levels that they did before. So in 1985, the first six games of the series averaged a 25.4 rating. That year, Murder, She Wrote averaged 25.3 rating. So you could say back then, um, and I'm not even getting into Family Ties, which is a 30, and Cosby <laughs> Show, which was a 33.7. Golden Girls got a 21.8 people. Like the most amazing fact, I wasn't alive back then, so maybe you guys can bring us back to this, Most of this era. Is that Golden Mork Girls and was higher mm-hmm. rated. 60 million people watch that damn show. Every mm-hmm. week at the peak of its popularity. So you could have written an article back then saying that baseball wasn't as popular as Mork and Mindy. And everything on television has decreased in popularity because the world's just less boring now than it was back in 1985. You can be on the Internet, Mike. There was no mm-hmm. Internet competing mm-hmm. with George Brett back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would we do, baby, without us? This was the question posed by Family Ties, (laughs) and I think it was most aptly answered in Game 5 last night. The ratings, Game 2 got 12.9 million viewers. Game 3 got 12.1 million viewers. You know, that's comparable to the year before. That's better than when the Giants swept the Tigers. That's better than when the Cardinals and the Rangers went to 7, right? So that's better. So they're doing a little better than the thing that you should compare it to. And I thought the one thing that was annoying to you, Josh, was that they didn't compare it to NHL ratings. That, I thought, would be the thing that you didn't like. I think we should point out also that the news of baseball's death has been broadcast or, you know, telexed 
or mm-hmm. teletyped since the 19th century. Our friend Brian Curtis had a wonderful piece on Grantland a few weeks ago um, in well, which think- he interviewed John Thorne. He went to John Thorne Baseball Historian's home, and they sort of went through the clippings over the last 140 years of predictions of baseball's demise. And we see the exact same tropes play out from year to year. You know, baseball is old-fashioned. Baseball is... Your father's Chevrolet. Um, I thought it was your grandfather's Oldsmobile. Your grandfather's Oldsmobile. It can be whatever you want it to be. grandmother's Model A. This trope has been in existence for 130 years, 140 years, in which the news of baseball's death has been broadcast or teletyped. So it's nothing surprising when year after year we get the same silly argument that baseball is dead and it's not what it once was. Well, I'm looking forward to game six where uh, Joe Buck, Tom Verducci, and Harold Reynolds will go through all of the numbers that show that the New York Times is about to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got served Circul- from baseball. Is down. It is now time for a word from our sponsor, FanDuel.com, which is a fantasy football site that allows you to start fresh every week. FanDuel lets you win real money by picking a new roster of players. If you had a horrible fantasy draft and your team is 0-8 and your starting quarterback is somehow the New Orleans Saints' Aaron Brooks circa 2002, never fear. You can pick a fresh team and give it another shot. And if you win, you do not have to wait for your friend Steve to pay you. You'll get an immediate cash payout. Entry fees start at just a dollar, and there is no season-long commitment or upfront fees. FanDuel pays out more than $10 million every single week this NFL season. Go to FanDuel.com. Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner and use our code HANG to sign up. FanDuel's new user special is ending soon. They will match your first deposit dollar up to 200 bucks, which means you can get up to $200 for free. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use our code HANG. FanDuel.com, where every week is a new season. That is F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. On Sunday in Las Vegas, Brazilian Silvano Alves won the world title at the Professional Bull Riders World Finals. But who cares about that guy? We are here today to talk about Bushwhacker. In his last ever event, the 750-pound bull won his third career PBR world title, edging out his half-brother Roy. That's just it. That's it. Roy. That's all. Uh, by bucking off former world champ Mike Lee to earn 46 and a half points out of a possible 50. The write-up of the last ride, uh, Bushwhacker's last ride, on the PBR website says, and I quote, Lee sustained a concussion when his head was slammed into the ground. However, it didn't take away from the fact that Lee was grateful to be the last rider to ever attempt arguably the greatest bull in the history of the sport. It was awesome, Lee said. I just wish I wouldn't have taken his fake. It was an honor to be able to get on him one last time. This is a man who just suffered a concussion. Bushwhacker's owner, Julio Moreno, told the Las Vegas Review-Journal afterwards that the key to the bull's success was simple. He has a big heart. He likes to buck. Perhaps giving us a little bit more of an in-depth analysis is our guest, Slade Long. He works for PBR. He records the stats, and he writes articles for them, and he is the proprietor of Pro Bull Stats. Dot com. Slade, thanks for being with us. Ah, great to be here. So tell us about Bushwhacker. We saw the World Finals. We saw him buck off uh, Mike Lee on his last ride. But what can you tell us about this Bulls career? It was eight, eight years long and one of the most storied careers in the history of Bulls. He's actually been around for six years. 
So in 2009, he was a three-year-old bull. He uh, he actually, I, I guess you could go a, a year beyond that. He bucked with the dummy on him a little bit. When bulls are young, they, they buck in futurities. Uh, like uh, they're too small to carry a rider, so they have a little electronic dummy that sits on their back and uh, releases itself at four seconds. And, and Bushwhacker wasn't very good at that. He was like uh, like an awkward teenager, you know. Didn't have his feet up under him. Uh, but since he's grown big enough to, to hold a rider up, no, no bull's really been able to hold a candle to him. He, he's, he, found his, he found his way and kept going. Kind of a late bloomer, I guess. You know, I was watching the, the finals last night, and there was a, a great profile of Bushwhacker's career. And I was really trying to understand what makes a great bull. And the descriptions that riders were giving described... Um, how he comes out of the chute with a very long first jump. He leads with his front end so high that it gets the rider out of time with him. He loses timing, and then he kicks his back end up with his front feet off the ground. Can you describe a little bit for us what makes a great bull, what made this a great bull? Physics. He, he jumps high. He kicks hard. He does things athletically you would only expect from a small bull, and he's a big bull. He's a little bit like a defensive end that can run a four three forty and uh cover Anquan Bolden. <laughs> <laughs> I want that guy on my I want that guy on my team. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So he's he's a little bit of a physical freak in that way. He's he's got a lot of physical ability. Uh he does all this almost effortlessly. It's not like he's it, it doesn't look like he's working too hard to do it. Uh he's just got it. You know, he's he's gifted athletically. So uh so a lot of what makes a bull good is just physics, how high did he jump, how high did he kick, he has quick turns, he has, those things are difficult for a for a bull rider to deal with. Do riders have bull specific strategies or just hold on for your life? Uh they do have strategies. They're very advanced in the way they think about uh there's there's a lot of mechanical uh aspects to to riding a bull that uh that apply to every bull, and some of them, uh, when they get on different bulls, they, they may change their strategy a little bit. Some bulls aren't quite as uh, high jumpers. They, they do more spinning, or they may want to throw you off a particular way, so the, the rider might adjust for that. In most cases, uh, when, when you're talking about guys just getting on every bull, there's a little bit of margin for error. If the bull's not very good, there's a huge margin for error. You can make a big mistake and get away with it. With with a bull of bushwhacker's ability, you can't make even the slightest mistake, he punishes it. But was he like, was there anything that was less of a greatness? I'm not going to call it a flaw, but, you know, when you pitch bonds, you can't give it to him anything over the plate. You can't bust him inside. Maybe you work him outside a little bit. Anything like that with Bushwhacker? Uh, he got a little bit complacent at times. Uh, it was pretty easy for him to throw guys off, uh, get them on the ground. And, and bulls that score a lot of quick buck offs, almost every bull that has this uh, eventually develops into I'm only working as hard as I have to to get the guy off. So so at times, we've seen Bushwhacker just do enough to throw the guy off. Uh, but when he gets challenged, he tends to he tends to come back with, uh, with a vengeance. So Bushwhacker bucked off 64 of 66 riders in six years. Um, J.B. Mooney rode Bushwhacker in 2013, rode means stayed on for eight seconds. Can you describe what that moment was this was kind of like a huge deal in the PBR that when this happened right uh yeah it was it was a big deal uh I think he scored uh 95 points or something like that on at the time Mooney who's 
really probably the best bull rider in the world at riding that kind of bull. He's he's ridden just about every bull that the other guys can't ride. He's he's kind of a giant dragon slayer, you know. He's been on Bushwhacker quite a few times. He's actually been on Bushwhacker, I believe, 12, 11 or 12 times total, 10 or 11, 10 to 12 times in his career. He's gotten on him every chance he's, he's gotten, and it was beginning to look chaotic, and he got by him. And I think that uh, when he got by him, he got a little bit lucky. He did everything right and got a little bit lucky. Can we talk a little bit about Pro Bill stats and and how this works? I mean, you're sort of the uh, the Nate Silver of uh, of professional bull riding. Tell us what what the relevant stats are here and what you're looking for when the uh, on the circuit. I've heard that name, Nate Silver, but I can't remember who he is. I think of myself as the. He's Bill just James. some non bull riding geeky guy. Don't worry about. Yeah, it. go with Bill James. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm wrong. Forget Nate Silver. That guy's like 30. Bill James is uh, your man. I like Bill James, and and I'm in a similar position in bull riding because we never really kept stats like this for years and years, and uh, it wasn't my idea to do it, uh, but I helped do it. The the guy who had the original idea uh, develop it, and and then he left it with me, and I've been keeping stats ever since. You know, as a as a modern, evolved sport, bull riding is not as modern and involved as other sports, obviously, but we do have quite a bit more uh, measurables to look at now than we did, say, 15 years ago when there was almost none. And so what are some of those measurables? I'm looking at the rankings. Bull, bull, uh, keeping their stats tells you how hard they are to ride, uh, what kind of competition they face how the judges mark them, typically. Uh, whenever the bull bucks a guy off, usually the bull still gets a score. The judges will write down his score. It's good to keep them sharp in evaluating. And, you know, it's a little their, their score is subjective. And so the, the judges, the, the more they do it, the really the better they are at it. So they write down every score for a bull. They're constantly comparing bulls at every event. So we keep all those scores from the, from the buck offs and from the rides and you know, who the bull's gone against, what kind of situation it was, uh, whether the guy was right or left-handed, that plays into bull riding quite a bit. So just about everything you can think of. So it's not just the best bull in the round or not. So it's not just buck-off percentage. That's not the total sum mark for how good a bull is. Yeah, that's definitely not the measure of greatness in a bull. A bull can be pretty hard to stay on and still not be very good. If you can imagine a bull running as fast as a uh, bovine can run out into the arena and then all of a sudden turn left, that would be hard to ride. But it wouldn't be a great bucking bull. Do you know if any of the riders look at your stats and maybe do they do your stats help anyone, either riders or judges, uh, refine what they have to do? Absolutely, the riders do uh, look at them quite a bit. Uh, in fact, uh, when there's a uh, when there's a draft round, uh, they all have their phones out looking at them right before they pick which bull they want. Uh, some of the times, the riders get to choose what bull they get on. Um, some of the times, it's a random draw. They tend to look at the bull stats either way. And bull stats usually tell you uh, which way he spins. You can usually glean that little bit of information. It'll tell you who's been on it before. So it might be the guy sitting next to you. You turn around and ask him, how did you like that bull? You know. So when I was watching the World Finals and also reading these stories, 
Um, there's been a lot of talk about this being Bushwhackers' farewell season, which probably doesn't happen that often that a bull is treated like Derek Jeter and like greeted warmly at every event. But, you know, on this last buck off, you saw Mike Lee is on the ground. He looks like he might be hurt. And then the announcers are saying things like, there are times when you tip your hat and there are times when you stand up and take notice. Like they're just paying more attention to the bull. So is this just a bushwhacker specific phenomenon or do fans um, actually root for the bulls more than they do the writer, the writers? Well, some fans do. And in Bushwhacker's case, a lot of people are anxious to see Bushwhacker. And uh, even the other writers, uh, you know, who are around it all the time, they don't stick their heads up over the fence and make sure they watch every single out during the event. But when Bushwhacker comes out, they're always watching. It's kind of like, you know, watching Herschel Walker run for Georgia. You know, everybody paid attention whenever Herschel Walker got the ball. He might have went to the refrigerator when Georgia was on defense. And what about historically? We know Herschel Walker. The guy's a legend. Does a lot of sit-ups. But Bushwhacker, you know, there there were a lot of bulls before you were keeping the stats. Um, is Bushwhacker the greatest bucking bull of all time? Uh, I would say he is for a couple of reasons. Before there were any stats to look at, uh, there were bulls that were as good as Bushwhacker. And even since Bushwhacker's been around, every single year that he's won the world champion bucking bull, it hasn't been a slam dunk. There's been other bulls that were threatening to take it from him, and he won it by just a slim margin. But like you saw yesterday, uh, the bull that was really favored going in, Asteroid, kind of had a off day. And I think that uh, Bushwhackers had far fewer of those off days in his career than any bull ever has, for one thing. So he's bucked at a higher level as there ever has been. He's had fewer off days. And throughout his career, he's faced the best guys that bull riding has to offer. Now, in the, in the past... Uh, some of the great bulls of the past, they may not have had to go, go up against uh, the top 10, top five guys, but a few times a year. They traveled more. They were used. They were bucked more. They weren't pampered like they are now, but they didn't have to face those best riders every single time like Bushwhacker has. I just wanted to ask you about now Bushwhacker going out to stud. My questions are, are the rules for bull riding like they are for thoroughbred racing? It has to be what in horses call a live covering or is bulls. I've read that bull semen is allowed to be shipped and sold and frozen. And the other thing is how important are genetics in creating a, a level of bull? Is it reasonable to think that bullwhackers, bush, sorry, bushwhackers progeny will be great bulls too? Yes. And that where you said bullwhacker, there may be dozens of bulls coming down the line that will be called something whacker. Mm-hmm. And no, they don't have to be like, they don't have to do live cover like thoroughbreds. They can sire uh, all spring in any way scientifically possible. Bucking bulls have already been cloned, for example, but in the case of a clone, they can't really compete in registry specific bull competitions when they're young. So, Cloning isn't a isn't a huge or a widespread thing, but uh, artificial insemination and uh, flushing and so forth is. So I expect bushwhacker semen to get around, and it'll leave quite a legacy. Last question, Slade. There's some great names on the professional bull riding circuit. Who's your favorite? Ryan Dirt Eater, Chase Outlaw, <laughs> or Stormy Wing? 
I see every bull rider's name, and that's always interesting to me. There, there's a guy uh, I think up around Wisconsin or something. His name is uh, Adam Falls, <laughs> and I thought that was an unfortunate <laughs> name. And there, and there's another one that I was trying to think of yesterday, and I can't. It escapes me. So I, I would, I would have to go back and find it. But Ryan Dirtleader would have to be at the top of a list of uh, unfortunately named bull riders. Well, Slade Long, I think you're a, you're a former bull, bull rider. I think that's an excellent name, and people can check out your work now at probullstats.com. Thank you for being with us today. All right, thank you. Last Wednesday, the University of North Carolina released the results of an eight month investigation into a so called shadow curriculum, in which 3,100 students, about half of them athletes, got credit for classes that did not exist between 1993 and 2011. That report written by former federal prosecutor Kenneth L. Weinstein, explains that the cheating scheme was based out of the African-American Studies Department and that students would get credit for classes that had no lectures and required no attendance by submitting a single paper that was often plagiarized. According to the report, Department Chair Julius Inyangoro would assign grades based largely on his assessment of the impact that grade would have on the student's ability to remain eligible, and the department administrator, Deborah Crowder, would negotiate with team personnel over individual students' grades. We're now joined by Mary Willingham, who worked for the Athletes Tutoring Program in North Carolina for seven years, who was the first to blow the whistle on UNC, telling the Raleigh News and Observer in 2011 that the university was steering athletes towards no-show classes. Mary, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And before we get into the details of the report and what you thought about it, can you take us back to when you were working for the Athletes Tutoring Program and what you saw? When I was working in the Academic Support Program for Student Athletes between 2003 and 2010 here at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I saw many uh, woefully underprepared athletes who were being admitted to the university um, and, of course, being promised a real education but that wasn't happening because we were keeping them eligible with fake classes. And I learned about that pretty early on. Um, that was the system that the university had been using for many years to keep players on the court, on the field, and traveling sometimes if they were you know, playing in the Olympics or playing World Cup or something like that. So that's how we operated. It was a pretty amazing system. So there's a slide presentation um, that was quoted in this report, that this is like actually on a slide <laughs> that says, you know, we put athletes in classes that met degree, degree requirements in which they didn't go to class, they didn't take notes or have to stay awake, they didn't have to meet with professors, they didn't have to pay attention or ne- necessarily engage with the material. And then the slide said, these classes no longer exist. And this was like met with kind of felt like sadness within the North Carolina Athletic Department, particularly within the football team, that these classes no longer existed. Is that fair to say that the when this was kind of disbanded, that this was seen as bad news within the athletic department? Right. I was still there in 2009 uh, when that was happening. And yes, I mean, everybody was upset. And we talked about it very openly um, in the field house uh, about you know, what are we going to do with these guys? Because they're still letting them in through the front door of the organization, and they're expecting us to keep them eligible, and now we're, going to, we're not going to have any way at all. I mean, we justified this system because we've, we thought we were doing, 
you know, I think it, at the time we all just thought we were helping these guys. But, you know, it's not helping them. They're not getting a real education. So the students are the real losers in all of this. Why do you think this was tolerated and sanctioned and encouraged? Because we have boosters and board of trustee members and alum who like entertainment and the money that it and the money that comes from sports, um, and not they don't care about the education. Well, they got a real education, but they don't care if the athletes are getting a real education. So, I mean, our priorities are just twisted, and it's not just at Carolina; it's it's across the country that. Um, this happens. No, I, I, th- it's been obviously happening for generations of athletes, particularly in the revenue sports of football and basketball. I wrote about this at the University of, at the University of Rhode Island a decade ago, where there was a similar scandal involving the basketball team. It didn't get much traction. This got traction because you came out and you were named and you and you blew the whistle on it. The one thing that seems to be glaringly missing from this report is any culpability on the part of uh, higher-level administrators at North Carolina. Why do you think that is, and do you think that's going to change? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's that's always the case. Uh, the, no one in charge ever um, takes the blame for any of this. And, you know, all the, all the lower-level staff, the folks who work day-to-day to try to do their best to help these athletes at least get some of what's been promised to them are the ones who take the fall. I think that's that's just a symptom in our entire country. But, you know, higher education has been completely compromised by big-time sport. It's all about the money. And the people who are at the top just protect themselves and protect each other. Look, admissions, no, nothing was even in the report about admissions. And how could we, how could um, Mr. Weinstein completely not look? I mean, he, he, he even admitted, I'm not looking over here behind this door. But that's the front door. So, I mean, that, that for me was the worst, worst part of it, because if you let them in and the administration's approving them to come in, uh, you know, what do we do with these guys? Because, you know, their reading and writing skills are so behind. And it's just the whole thing is a sham. Is it credible to think that Roy Williams and uh, the head coaches of the football teams while you were there, including Butch Davis, couldn't have known about this? I have said um, time and time again that everyone knew and everyone knows. At some level, they all know. I mean, we don't like, as Frank DeFord always says, we don't like to look at ugly things. You know, so we put our blinders on and we, and we justify. But truth is going to come out eventually because the truth does eventually leak out. And as we can see here at North Carolina, and, you know, whether they admit now that they knew or not, I mean, they should have known, right, because they're promising. They're the coaches are sitting on the couches in the homes of these families, promising these young men and their parents that, and their mothers in particular that they're going to get a real education. And, you know, they, they ramble off the classes that they're going to take. So anyone who didn't know should be, um, you know, just as much to blame because it was a system. I mean, 3,000 students took these paper classes over two decades. That's and, a lot. But, but I mean, specifically with Roy Williams, he sort of voiced his disbelief at your allegations. And from what I read, you even offered to share specific details on his players. Do you ever take you up on that? Have you ever had a conversation? Mike, let's also note that 10 of the 15 players on the 2005 national champion North Carolina basketball team were African-American studies majors. And that's where all the no-show classes were. Right. right. So I mean, he never, talk- he never, um, no, we've, we've never had coffee or tea or anything together. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that I won't be invited to his Christmas party either. It, you know, I'll just get my own cheese ball 
But look, you know, I mean, what's right is right. I, I raised three kids in my house, and, you know, I feel for these parents of these young men all across the country who aren't getting what we promised them. And, you know, where are they now? You know, my kids still have access and they're privileged. And, you know, no one wants to talk about race. You know, that's the whale swimming just below the surface and all of this, too. We have two black sports who are paying for all the other sports on our campus. So football and basketball, men's, predominantly African-American male, paying for field hockey, soccer, diving, fencing, predominantly white, privileged kids um, who come from, you know, there's some new studies out saying that those kids are coming from um, homes where the incomes are half a million dollars a year. So why are, why are their scholarships being paid off the backs of these other guys who aren't getting what, what we're promising them? And that's what we should be talking about and not about really anything else. I mean, we, we should, I think, you know, uh, Mr. Weinstein did the same thing. You know, he answered a couple of questions, but the biggest question, like you said, was left unanswered, and that's why does this happen? 3,000 students, though, not all of them certainly were football and basketball players, men only. Um, There's an email from Jeanette Boxel to Deborah Crowder that was in the report in which she sort of says a D will be fine for a women's basketball player. Sure. Um, there, there are other sports involved here. Sure, there's other sports involved, but, you know, that, that was one thing that he could have helped us out with, too, is some more numbers about, okay, so, you know, in these, in these particular sports or even, ath- and, or even uh, students who were not athletes, how many of these paper classes did they take, one or two? And then the guys over here in football and basketball, how many did they take? Six, eight, ten? How does the number 16 grab you guys? Yeah. And how many in golf and how many in field hockey and how many in women's soccer? I mean, that would certainly be uh, help us to understand how this university in particular is steering athletes and trying to keep them eligible. Right. That would, have been, that would have been a little bit more transparent, and we would have gotten some... Disc- See, that's the problem is, you know, we, we, we come back around when we have these issues at these schools across the country, and we say, okay, we admit it, it's a problem, we've gotten rid of all the bad apples, and we've fixed, now we've got this problem fixed. But there's really, and then we move forward without transparency and disclosure still. So we do all of this behind closed doors, and we hide behind FERPA, rights because, you know, there's student privacy laws and HIPAA and all this. But it's really just, it's just a bunch of hocus pocus as we head towards Halloween on Friday. This is the true masquerade party. (laughs) So uh, Rashad McCants came out this year on ESPN's Outside the Lines and said, um, and McCants was on that 2005 NCAA title basketball team, that he had taken these sham classes and that he didn't do any of the work. And he was really harshly criticized by his former teammates who said that he was lying by people in the UNC community. And you've experienced that as well. I mean, you mentioned the whale below the surface. Kind of the subtext of this conversation is that a lot of, you know, what you've said back in 2011 and can you just say you've, that, you know, you've been really, really harshly criticized, demonized for it if we're going to go with the Halloween theme here. Um, <laughs> I'm um, a witch. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I know. People have kind of hit on the fact that you're maybe not the perfect vessel for these criticisms. You were accused recently of plagiarism on your master's thesis, and the university has also tried to discredit a study that you did on the reading um, scores of some of these students. So how do you respond to um, either or both of those criticisms? Well, the research is 100% correct. So that the, the people that they hired to take a look at 
the data. They didn't give the full data set to. So that was also a scam. This is when um, you said that 60% of uh, football or basketball players are reading between a fourth and eighth grade level, just to... Of, the, of my subset, which was about 180 athletes um, over a period of five, five years or so. And they were special talents. You know, they were, our, they were the kids who were getting in the front door, right. um, you know, with, with uh, special um, admissions circumstances. So, yes, but that is correct. And, and, and I still stand by the data and stand by those numbers. As far as my master's thesis goes, um, I made a couple of mistakes. Calling it plagiarism is, is pretty harsh. You know, I'm going to fix that, of course, just as I would ask any student to fix it and, and resubmit it and make an update. Um, that master's thesis was um, read by 14,000, um, had 14,000 hits out there. So um, I would challenge anybody out there to see if their master's thesis had, had that much activity. I'm pretty proud of, of the work that I, that I did. And I think we should say, correct me if I'm wrong, but of all your allegations that were thoroughly vetted by uh, Kenneth Weinstein, they were confirmed and a bunch of your allegations just weren't vetted. So those are the ones that are still out there. That's right. That's right. He didn't, he didn't take a look at the admissions at all. So he yeah. didn't, so therefore he didn't look at the, my claims about, you know, the underprepared athletes. But, you know, all you have to do is look at the NAEP. You just have to look at national statistics with regards to um, reading levels in our country, and you'll see that, you know, we have some very, very scary numbers out there as far as, you know, eighth grade, males reading at grade level, you know, 90% um, are not black males and 65% white males are not reading at grade level in this country at eighth grade. I've, I've started a um, campaign, Literacy Before Legacy, you can see it out at paperclassinc.com, but I've st- started a campaign. I'm asking for support to go back and help these guys to get them prepared for the classroom because, you know, there, there's so many athletically gifted athletes in this country, but if we don't get them ready for real education, then we should not connect uh, athletics and post-secondary institutions. We should separate them like the Europeans do. It does strike me that, on the one hand, the stuff that you detailed and the stuff that Weinstein found, you could say, wow, there's probably a lot of this going on at a lot of institutions, which doesn't excuse it at all. But the thing that seems, tell me if I'm wrong, the thing that seems unique that they found about UNC was that they captured a whole department. It wasn't just there's a sham class and it wasn't that some tutors are doing the work or different ad hoc ways to essentially commit academic fraud. There was this institutionalized system where they had a whole department that was just issuing whatever grade to make anyone eligible. And I'm wondering if, you know, that revelation, do you think that that's a notable revelation? Do you have reason to think that, you know, if we looked harder, we'd find that sort of thing elsewhere? I think we'd find that that elsewhere. I mean, after the CNN report ran in January, um, I had thousands, close to 4,000, I believe, emails from people across the country, and many of them were from other colleges and universities where people are afraid. You know, they're afraid of the NCAA cartel, because that's exactly what it is. It's scary. But they were afraid to say anything publicly, but they sent me emails to tell me that the same thing existed at their particular institutions. It was fascinating. And it's usually within a department. But I think at Carolina, the race um, issue bubbles to the surface again because it was our African-American studies department. And, and I just find it fascinating that some of the coaches um, publicly say, well, of course, I thought that my black athletes would be interested in black history. And that, that seems kind of odd to me that we, we assume that 
that that would be the interest of these particular students. I mean, why wouldn't they be interested in the 78, all the other 78 majors that we offer at Carolina? I don't know. I would think they would be. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for being with us. I think I speak for all of Hang Up and Listen when I say, hope you have a happy Halloween. Thank you very much. Chapel Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and having having me on today. Thanks. I would suggest you just pre-toilet paper the lawn. Because it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> All right. And I would also suggest I'll do that... I'll and take a picture and send it to you guys. <laughs> cool. And don't have your children dress up as Dean Smith this Halloween, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll make sure they don't do that. All right, take care. Thanks. Bye. Now it is time for After Balls. After Bowls. Did I... I didn't even say Sable Metrics. You didn't I, say Sable. I, like, came up with this whole, like... Haha, hilarious uh, term, Sable Metrics, and I didn't get to use it with Slade Long. Slade Bull Slade! Where'd you go, Slade? Come back. I wanted to say Sable Metrics. Sable Metrics! <laughs> All right, moving on. Mike Volo, our producer, says Stable Metrics mm-hmm. would be better. Right. Uh, and no. Mike wants the show to no. end in a hurry, and yet he's throwing out <laughs> witticisms. If only he weren't so damn witty. You want, we, you we want a microphone, Volo? We would have been finished a half hour ago. Let's, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, so Bushwhacker's parents, we talked about there are going to be a lot of little whackers around. His parents were not whackers. His father was reindeer dipping. Mother was Lady Luck, the daughter of Diamond's Ghost. Wait, wait. Is that the daughter of Diamond's Ghost, Lady's Luck? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if any of these are hitting you as afterball names, but the biggest... Uh, bull on tour. Bushwhacker is like in the middle somewhere. Uh, is Mississippi hippie that weighs in at 2300. Stefan's nodding. As long as we don't pick Unabomber, which was the name of a bull <laughs> not long ago. I don't think that's a good after bull name. It Probably does. Not. It does surprise me that the cows themselves have names. They're, they don't race. They're not. I don't understand it. Should we call Slade back? I, w- I still want to tell him about Sable Metrics. We can ask another question. All right. Well, Let's let's do Mississippi hippies, Mike. What is your Mississippi hippie? Well, Texas Tech played uh, TCU, the Horned Frogs. You happen to catch the result of this one, Josh? Eighty-two twenty-seven. It was eighty-two twenty-seven. And in Whimsy? looking at the hmm? Whimsy? not if you were TC, not if you this were Texas was, Tech. This was, we believe, since uh, whatever some arbitrary start date. Let's say the last ten years, the most <laughs> points that a team has ever scored. Against the legit team. Pesca metrics. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 10 years. Whatever. Yeah, let's say 10 years. So the, the 82 points, that's pretty great against the non-Appalachian State. And Appalachian State, I shouldn't pick on. They're actually a good team. But I was going through the box score, studying it, wondering about it. And I came across something odd. Now, a lot of times a team can have a long drive and it not pay off. In fact, the Baltimore Ravens against Cincinnati went for a 90-yard drive. It was an 18-play drive, and they went for it on fourth and one in their game, and uh, Flacco's pass was incomplete. And that was actually the longest drive in Ravens history that didn't result in a score. But this one drive that I was looking at, it was only one of two times that uh, they didn't score on a drive. It was unusual. It's odd that I'm focusing on TCU's only failure, but what an unusual failure it was. It was a 14-play drive that went for 35 yards. And I don't think I've ever seen a 14-play drive that's gone for 35 yards. In fact, I was saying to myself, 
How do you do that? You got to gain 10 yards. And let's say you went for it on fourth down. You're still going to wind up with more than 35 yards. And then, of course, it hit me. I guess technically you could go backwards, go backwards, go backwards. Illegal use of the hands on the defense first down. Gain a couple yards. I mean, I guess you could have an infinite number of plays and go nowhere. So how it really happened was they ran for two, then they got a first down, then they got a lot of first downs on third down. And the big factor on this drive were two things happened. One, TCU lost after a false start and then a sack. They lost and they were down to third and 22. And they were down to fourth and 22. And then they got a roughing the kicker penalty. So that got them a first down. It didn't get them any more yards. So when you add it all up, it was 14 plays. They averaged, in these 14 plays, they somehow averaged, what, two and a half yards a play? It was a total failure, except for absolutely everything else in the game. It was to the shame of TCU. TCU, but that's how you do a 14-play, 35-yard drive. All right, Stefan Fatsis, what is your Mississippi hippie? Is it too late to change the after-all name? Because the 300th-ranked bull on ProBullStats.com's ranking of all-time bulls is Booger Butt. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good. I like it. But let's do Mississippi hippie. Okay. All right, I was cleaning out the basement and came across a book that I've inexplicably been packing and unpacking for years. Golf for Boys and Girls by Chick Evans. I have no idea where it came from. I'm guessing my mother bought it at a yard sale, but my brother and I made fun of it and Chick Evans' name, so I've been hanging on to the book. We did not know, though, of the legend of Chick Evans. Born in 1890, Chick competed in the U.S. Amateur Championship a record 50 straight times, winning it twice, finishing second three times. He's the only golfer ever to win the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Open in the same year, 1916. And he established a college scholarship program for caddies that still exists and on which Danny Noonan's college scholarship in Caddyshack was based. Published in 1954, Golf for Boys and Girls opens with Chick spotting a couple of sad-looking kids, Jim and Judy, on Chick's beloved home course in Chicago. Chick strikes up a conversation with them in the clubhouse. Pardon me, Judy says, but did you say your name was Chick Evans? Gee, I've heard father talk about you often. He said you were one of the great golf stylists and one of the best approach shot players the game has ever known. Does stylist refer to his writing style or his play on the links? So begins an 18-hole humble brag in which Chick praises himself for remaining an amateur and disses the rise of professionalism in sports. You must have had a wonderful career in golf, Mr. Evans, Jim says. (laughs) I have made no riches, in money that is, Chick replies, but it has brought me a life rich in friendships, in sportsmanlike competition, in travel, and in the health that is every golfer's reward. What an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Aboard a ship heading up a canal on the way to the British amateur, Chick drives a ball onto a course near some players. We were close enough to hear them shout in amazement. When Chick lists every last one of his titles, Jim exclaims, that's quite a string of championships. Chick schools Judy and Jim about the finer points of the game, get off my lawns about how he only needed seven clubs in his bag, and whines about a thoughtless class of golfers who don't replace their divots. 
In chapter four, Chick introduces himself to Judy and Jim's mom. In chapter five, he has chocolate sodas with the kids at Martin's drugstore. There are photos of Judy swinging in a cardigan and mid-shin length dress and photos of Chick, Chick Picks, posing with Bing Crosby, with Al Jolson, with Ben Hogan, with Bing Crosby and Ben Hogan. Chick doesn't tell Jim and Judy about the pot bunkers of his life, though. He dropped out of Northwestern because his parents couldn't afford it. In the 1920s, he was a stockbroker and lost a shitload in the market and had a nervous breakdown. He spent decades working as a wholesale milk salesman. Chick also doesn't mention his worst defeat, 8-7 and seven to Bobby Jones in the finals of the 1927 U.S. Amateur. Kurt Sampson's 1998 book, The Masters, tells the story in detail, and it is something. In 1963, at age 73... Chick told an AP reporter that Jones had gamed him that day on the first tee, telling him he had placed his ball in front of the markers and on the last hole, refusing to concede a two-inch tap-in and then calling him, correctly it sounds, for touching the ball with his putter before the putt. Chick also grumbled about Jones's 22 clubs to his noble seven, saying that Jones had developed his game with his clubs rather than his skull. After the interview, Jones wrote to the head of the U.S. Golf Association. He said he had never talked about the confrontation before and wouldn't go public, but he contradicted Chick's version of the match's end, saying Chick preferred being the apparent victim of a misfortune to playing the long 12th hole up the hill away from the clubhouse. I just hope Jim and Judy didn't read this account of their idol's behavior. By the way, you can get a first edition of Golf for Boys and Girls on Biblio.com for anywhere from $15 to $370. I'd get the $15 one. (laughs) Stefan is holding it up. It is indeed Chick Evans' Golf for Boys and Girls. There's a golf club and a ball on the cover. And uh, I would recommend the $15 version as well. I think that's sound advice. Josh, what's your Mississippi hippie? Nate Silver's website, 538. You might remember Nate Silver as the guy who is not Slade Long's role model. Slade Long of baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, he has this website, 538. Um, It's kind of like a sister site to ProBullStats.com. It debuted a short film last week called The Man vs. the Machine, a documentary about the 1996 chess match between world champion Garry Kasparov and IBM's Deep Blue. This is a famous victory for the computer the first indication of what has now become very obvious, that computers are better than people at chess. The documentary, though, puts forward the claim that Deep Blue still could have been beaten that year, but Kasparov got psyched out when, in the 44th move of the second game, Deep Blue made a move that made no sense. Kasparov thought it was a sign of the machine's superior intelligence. Mm -hmm. In reality, it was a bug. It was a random legal move that the computer made uh, due to a glitch in its programming. After that, Kasparov's play dipped and Deep Blue won the match. Okay, so that's chess. Uh, But four years earlier, there was a similar man versus machine match in checkers. The machine was a checkers playing program called Chinook. The man was Marion Tinsley, known by acclamation as the greatest checkers player ever, or if you prefer, the bushwhacker of checkers. Between 1948 and 1995, Tinsley came in first in every tournament he entered. He only lost seven individual games of checkers during that 47-year run. In 1990, Chinook finished second to Tinsley at the U.S. Nationals. That earned the computer program the chance to compete against Tinsley for the world title. The American Checkers Federation and the English Federation both refused to sanction such a competition. So Tinsley renounced his championship belt and the man versus machine world championships proceeded in London. 
Screw you, American Checkers Federation. Tinsley, a mathematics professor at Florida State, would win the best of 40 match, four games to two, with 33 draws, with those games attended by about 50 people per day. According to a 1992 Sports Illustrated piece by Gary Belsky, Tinsley, unlike Kasparov, benefited from a computer bug. Inexplicably, Belsky writes, Chinook froze 27 minutes into the first hour of the 18th game, and nobody could thaw out the program. They resigned the game to even the match at two all. Although, I guess in fairness, if the program just froze, Kasparov probably would not chalk that up to extreme computer intelligence. So, not quite, not quite parallel, but... Tinsley did benefit from this bug. Um, and in the same piece, Belsky writes that Tinsley had a better than computer-like grasp of the 500 billion billion or so possible moves in a checkers game, an understanding that allows him to see 30 moves ahead as opposed to the 24-move prescience of Chinook. Tinsley, who is deeply religious, explained, I've got a better programmer, God. Well, hate to say it, but God was not the best checkers programmer because in 2007 chinook's programmer dr jonathan schaefer declared in the journal science that the game of checkers had been solved the best any human could possibly do against chinook was earn a draw god was dead at least in checkers chinook and tinsley did have a rematch two years after that original match after six drawn games though tinsley had to resign due to the increasing severity of his pancreatic cancer and tinsley died the next year at age 68. Um, he died before checkers would solve. Chinook never beat him in a match. Um, Schaefer, the man who programmed Chinook, had immense respect for Tinsley. In a piece titled Marion Tinsley, Human Perfection at Checkers, the Canadian researcher describes an early game between Tinsley and his computer program. After the 10th move, Tinsley looked up and said, you're going to regret that. Being inexperienced in the ways of the great Tinsley, Schaefer writes, I sat there silently thinking, what do you know? My program is searching 20 moves deep and says it has an advantage. Several moves later, Chinook's assessment dropped to equality. A few moves later, it said Tinsley was better. Later, Chinook said it was in trouble. Finally, things became so bad, we resigned. In my experience with tournament chess and checker players, the sixth sense is experience. It is well known how intensely Tinsley studied the game. Schaefer writes, analyzing anything from a grandmaster game to a game between novices. His uncanny ability to know good from bad and safe from dangerous is the direct result of all his hard work. Strong chess players have the same ability, but perhaps it is not quite as evident as it was with Tinsley. And that is all. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Wolo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.